Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. Eighty years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg. She is the president of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, better known as INSA, and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation, a 501c3. As president, Suzanne oversees INSA's finances, strategic planning, marketing, events, and corporate partnerships. Since 2010, Suzanne has held various leadership positions at INSA, most recently serving as the organization's first chief operating officer. She was the driving force behind INSA's expansion into markets outside of the Washington, D.C. region, as well as its popular The New IC Symposium, which focuses on diversity with inclusion in the entire intelligence community. Prior to INSA, she served as Vice President of Marketing for Ripple Communications, a woman-owned strategic communications firm. Suzanne, welcome, and I am so excited to have you here today. I'm delighted and humbled to be included in this podcast series, so thank you, Megan. Of course. So let's just jump right in. So I know um, that your path to the intelligence community and the national security community has been a bit unexpected. So can you share with us how you found your way into this work? Indeed. You know, Megan, I find that some people have mapped out their career. They know exactly what job they want and then what job they need next to get to the next job. And mine has not been a linear path like that. (laughs) A lot of it has been trial and error as well as my network, which I think is a very important part of anyone's career journey, no matter what they're doing. But quite honestly, I was working for a woman-owned small business strategic consulting firm. And I ran into a woman at a cocktail party in the neighborhood, kind of a a gathering of moms, um, probably in December, about 10 years ago. And I met a woman who was talking about some hiring needs she had. And I gave her my business card and just said, you know, I don't do this, but maybe I could help connect you with some other folks. So long story, short story, um, it was Ella McCarthy, who at that time was the president of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, INSA, where I work now. And so we connected. And although I was not able to fill the needs she needed for that role, through my role in my consulting firm, I was able to fill a need she had in in a different role. So it really was just being open-minded and kind of out there, open to new opportunities and continuing to grow my network. You never know who you're going to meet or how things are going to unfold. And this is a perfect example. You were at a neighborhood party with a bunch of moms and just having a conversation and who knew it would lead to to all of this. So that's Coffee awesome. and cocktails can be a very powerful tool. So. 100%. So I would love if you could share with our listeners a bit about the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. What is the mission of INSA and why were you drawn to this mission? So the Intelligence and National Security Alliance is a 501c6 nonprofit. 
and we were established over 40 years ago out um, at Fort Meade near NSA. And it was a group of individuals working in the intelligence community from both the public private sectors, as well as some academia who came together to a degree to socialize, but also to collaborate on issues facing the intelligence community. And probably about 15 years ago, um, at that time, the organization was called SASA. That was the acronym. We rebranded to bring in the national security side of things. So it wasn't just intelligence. And we moved to Northern Virginia. We moved the office to Northern Virginia to be a little more central to both our government members, as well as our private sector and academic members. And at that time, we decided to focus on establishing some further thought leadership, growing the thought leadership of the community. I was not there at that time. Ellen McCarthy, who I mentioned earlier, was was the president. But really bringing together the, the public sector, the private sector, academia, and really now students too, which I think is the exciting part, to collaborate on many of the issues facing the intelligence community and making recommendations on types of policy changes And then also there's a networking aspect of the organization. As you know, Megan, you have Mm -hmm. helped us over the years uh, with a lot of our programming and developing that um, as we move forward into 2022. Well, I, I love INSA and I, I always tell people that it's kind of the premier, the only premier membership organization for the intelligence and national security community that brings together government and industry to tackle hard problems. So um, it, I, I think it's so important for people to who are interested in this space or who are in this space to get involved. So I'm forever an INSA or I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> we, we, we can we can coin that. And I find that we have grown to be a fairly, even though it is the intelligence and national security community inclusive organization, mm-hmm. I think overall whether you're a student, whether you're early in your career in the workforce, you're more senior, there is a place for you within the organization, whether it's uh, via some of our council work or coming to some of our events. Not everything is just focused on the senior leaders. We have a variety of different programs where we're looking to educate folks about careers in the intelligence community or maybe even empower them to make those next steps within their careers if they're already in the intelligence community. So I think that's an exciting part of the organization. A hundred percent. I agree. So as you mentioned, INSA brings together government and industry to tackle hard problems in our community. Um, Is it difficult to bring these two groups together? And what have you found surprising about the collaboration with these two groups? So, and I, and I, I'm going to throw in three groups because I always include our Acad- academia. We have probably yes. seven or eight colleges and universities that are members of INSA. Um, and that also includes, um, you know, the faculty as, as well as the students. So, you know, I think we sometimes refer to INSA as Switzerland, right? People, <laughs> and this is, this is what is surprising is yeah. that a lot of times folks can come to the table when we have meetings to talk about different issues facing the IC, and they can take off their corporate hat for a moment, right? You know, this is not, you know, sure, it's a benefit to my company and to me as an individual, but really it's for the mission and and the greater common good of the intelligence community. So it's very refreshing often when I'm in these meetings and 
you know, some of these folks have served in government, they're now in industry, some are in government, some are in academia, but they can really kind of take off their, their lens of being self-serving and work together, roll up their sleeves to make improvements and recommendations for policy changes within within the intelligence community, whether it's security policy reform, whether it's, you know, insider threat, we we really work together overall as as a team versus individuals out for themselves. I love that. So I, I think that brings us to our next question. And it got me thinking because I, I, I want to ask you what your most memorable moments at INSA have been. But I feel like I want you to answer that in a in a personal sense. Maybe it's a story or an anecdote or something that, you know, really stuck with you. But I would also like to know what you feel your biggest accomplishments have been. Uh, maybe you personally at INSA or INSA itself, what INSA's biggest accomplishment has been. So one of my more memorable moments was we were several years ago hosting a panel discussion on acquisition management reform, how to improve the acquisition process within government and specifically the IC. And we had an intern, we have a graduate student internship program at INSA, which interns join us generally for 12 to 18 months. They aren't summer interns, they're, they're with us for an enduring amount of time during their grad school journey. And they work about 25 hours a week. And they really are, a lot of people don't even realize that they're part-time interns. They think they're part of our staff. And so I had made a recommendation for a young man who was working acquisition, I believe at DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. I always try not to use too many acronyms. I love that. Thank you. The IC has lots of acronyms, and sometimes I'm not sure everyone knows what they stand for. They can tell you what they mean, but they can't tell you what they stand for. (laughs) And anyway, we invited him to be a panelist, and he was a former intern. And so to me, that was very, very powerful. And him being on stage talking about his career journey and going into an acquisition role, which quite honestly, isn't always the sexiest role in the intelligence community. Everybody wants to, you know, be a, be an analyst or they want to be out in the field um, doing wicked cool spy things. And so that really was kind of full circle seeing, you know, him going through his program, leaving INSA, and then actually coming back kind of as a subject matter expert. So that is a very memorable experience for me. And uh, we keep in touch with, with a lot of those folks who have given their internship hours to the organization. Oh, that's a great, that's a great story. I love that. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about mentors. So who have been your most influential mentors and why, and what have they taught you and how do you carry their torch um, to those that you mentor? So I, I kind of have broken down mentors into to three different categories. There are individuals like Ellen McCarthy, who hired me, and Tish Long, who is our chairman, who always inspired me, motivated me, and included me, even though my background is not in the intelligence community. And they also taught me how You can be empathetic, you can be caring, you can be a real authentic person and still be a respected leader. And I don't think everyone in leadership roles always carries those sorts of traits with them. I think there are some leaders who 
lead by intimidation and fear. I'm not saying just in the intelligence community across, <laughs> you know, right. across the right. globe. And you don't always have to be that type of leader, I think, to have to have impact. And then there are other individuals who I have learned a great deal from as mentors, and they're actually younger than I am. I would say a lot of our graduate school interns seeing some of the sacrifices they've made to pursue their graduate degrees and how they've managed not only being in school full time, but working 25 hours a week, and then sometimes even having another job on the side. It's like true testament to multitasking. And then there's folks like you, Megan, who you are younger than me, a friend of mine, uh, Nicole Gibson, who's with Guidehouse. She too is, is quite a few years younger than I am and have learned a lot from you all um, about how you have enhanced your careers and how you lead and how you all give back. And again, somebody doesn't have to be 10 or 20 years your senior in order to be a mentor. And it doesn't always have to be a formal relationship is what I found. And then there are quite a few men who I don't know if they realize that they have supported me and inspired me and mentored me and included me. And again, it's been organic, but Charlie Allen, who is a senior Intel advisor for INSA, never, never held it against me that I was not part of, of the intelligence community. He always encouraged me and believed in me. And I don't think I would be perhaps in the role I am today without Charlie Allen's support. And there's a gentleman by the name of Bill Warner, um, who's a senior leader at Mantech. And he actually embodies those character attributes of empathy and caring and not leading by fear. And I really had I, I really enjoyed watching him and his leadership style. And that's not always what you immediately think of when you think of male leaders. I'm not making a negative comment. It's just sort of sort of a fact. And then Admiral Tony Cochran, who used to serve on INS's executive committee, always you know, believed in me and, and gave me some time. And then Admiral um, Jake Jacoby, who is the former director of DIA and has served in a variety of different leadership roles at INSA. You know, we still get together every few months and have conversations about the organization and what we need to do differently and what's working. And so there, there again, there have been some some senior female leaders. There have been folks that are more junior to me, women that I've learned from, and then also quite a few men in this community who have encouraged and inspired me. I love that. And I can now I I mean, I know that you're my friend, but I've also seen you as a leader um, and I now know why you are such a good leader, because the names you just listed, um, some of them are my mentors as well, and they're fantastic people. And so um, I, I, I love that you were able to um, to share that with us. So thank you. So we're going to have some fun a little bit. And I, I know you quite well, and I'm lucky to call you my friend. Um, so what are a few things that people don't know about you or would be surprised to learn about you? So I, I received this question a couple of days ago and I've thought about it and I, you know, I feel like I'm kind of an open book. I'm pretty transparent, but there are a few things that if you didn't know me, you might be surprised. One is I'm a Southerner and I grew up in the South in Georgia, went to school in Auburn, Alabama. And sometimes I talk really fast and I do believe that I have lost the majority of my Southern accent if I ever had one. <laughs> 
but I, I still hold my, my upbringing to, you know, um, the, the South. And so that's not something that, that I want to lose sight of. And then we talked a little bit earlier about the pandemic and the impact that's had on so many of us and mostly not, not for the better, but there are a few things that, that came out of the pandemic that probably never would have for me personally and professionally. And one is I turned my closet into my office. And so I term it my cloth and for well <laughs> over a year and a half, this is where I've been working from. And I have a backdrop that I put up so no one can see the mess behind me, but it, it's, it's worked out quite well. And I think this will be an enduring part of my work-life balance, even when we're back in the office more than we are today. And then the other is during the pandemic, as we all know, gyms were closed, special, you know, studios were closed. People were unable to go indoors and work out and work off some of their pandemic frustrations. And so although I have no subject matter expertise in coaching individuals and group exercise, <laughs> I started a social distancing boot camp. And it was in my driveway, 10, only 10 people, because at that time, no more than 10 people could gather outside. And I had a waiting list in the very beginning. And it was actually men and women, you know, friends of mine from the neighborhood or just the community, and they would bring their teenage kids because these kids weren't able to play sports. They weren't going to school. They had very little social interaction. And so it was actually really neat because we brought together like the parents and children and we worked out and it was a way to socialize in a healthy way. And eventually when they lifted the 10 person mandate, I was able to have more individuals in, in my outdoor boot camp. But it was again a great way to socialize outdoors. Some of the participants made up t-shirts for all of us with a logo they created. And the the funny part of it is, is uh, you know, when I did have a wait list, I, you know, nobody ever paid to take these classes, these, you know, very amateur classes. But if you canceled three at less than three hours before your class, you had to drop off a roll of toilet paper. That was, there was no fee, but there was a penalty. So I did it for probably 14, 15 months, sometimes two classes a day. That's how stir crazy we were all going. And then when the world started opening back up and people could go back to their gyms and, and you know, uh, studios, we we disbanded the social distancing boot camp. So. I'm so glad you shared that with us because I, if you, if you had not, I was going to ask you about it. And I just love that. And if I may, I'd like to add one more. Um, it's more of a professional thing that people might not know about you, but you started your career on the Hill. I did start my career on the Hill. I knew when I graduated from college that I wanted to live in either Boston or Washington, D.C., and so I said, I either have to have a roommate or a job in one of those cities before I, I move. And so I uh, found a roommate in D.C. and I went and I passed my resume all over Capitol Hill. Every you know firm that did placement um, and and I secured a job on Capitol Hill. I worked there in a leadership office for about two years. I learned that I didn't want to work on Capitol Hill forever, <laughs> but. Yeah. I also learned more in that two years about 
what makes our government work and what is so wonderful about our country as a democracy. And then I also learned some of the things maybe that didn't work so well, but it was nothing you can take in a class, nothing you can read in a textbook. And the other thing I gained from that was, you know, when you're, when you're 21, 22 years old and working on Capitol Hill, especially in a leadership office, you're often exposed to fairly high level leaders and a lot of responsibility that sometimes I'd look at myself and think, well, do they know, you know who they've given this, this job to? <laughs> but but it, it does develop a certain amount of wherewithal, I think, in confidence yeah. at a very early age that maybe you don't always get in entry-level roles in other organizations. And so I, I have three daughters and I would tell them all, if you really don't know what you want to do post-college or whatever your path is, take a couple years and work on the Hill. And, and it, it is, I think, a priceless experience, at least from my perspective. I love that. You are amazing at executing and building organizations. And so I wonder what's next for you? What is your next kind of dream goal? So my dream goal for the organization, which it's hard for me to separate me personally from INSA and for those people who've ever worked at IMSA or volunteered or been a part of the community, it, it's sort of a family. And, and I know it sounds really sappy, but it really is. So it's hard for me to think about Suzanne without INSA. So my, my next goal is we created, we have a foundation and we created a scholarship fund. And we, this past year, awarded four $5,000 scholarships, two to undergraduates, two to individuals pursuing their master's in the intelligence community. And each of those were observed for an individual of, of color and was very proud that in quite a short time, we were able to raise the money and kick that off. I want to make that an enduring program. And I also think very soon on the horizon, we may be creating a named endowment and a named endowment for young women and undergrad who are pursuing careers in the intelligence community, but also maybe with a little bit of a STEM flavor to their curriculum that they're taking on. And so that's something that I hope we're going to be kicking off in, in 2022. So I said it on this podcast, you know, if it doesn't happen, you can hold me accountable, Megan. But but really the scholarship program, I think, is is even more important now as I've watched young people who they're college journey may have been postponed mm-hmm. or maybe wasn't enriching as enriching as it could have been because they are living at home and taking classes virtually. So any way we can help support and encourage and augment what it costs to, to go to college, um, I'm, I'm eager to be able to do that and, and do it in the coming years for, you know, kind of perpetuity. So. Well, I love that. And I feel like you're, um, you know, as far as um, the endowment, you're kind of speaking it into existence. So I think it's good that you said it on the podcast because it's right. out it, in well, the universe now. Certain level of accountability now that I've said it. <laughs> so we're, we've come to the end. And as you know, at the end of each episode, we ask the same question. And in keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Well, it's a code name that no one is probably familiar with the term who's listening. But several years ago, when I was encouraged to set up an Instagram account, which I was very 
resistant to do so. I created a name that no one would recognize. I don't know why I thought this, because the reality is, is anybody who wants to really find you on social media, there are resources to do that. But my my Instagram name, in case anybody wants to follow me, I don't know why you would want to, but um, <laughs> is, is Why Flyer. Why and then Flyer. And when I was younger and also into my teenage years, I was um, a sailor. I raced sailboats with my father and it was just the two of us. And we traveled around kind of the Southeast, sometimes, sometimes to New England, and we participated in regattas and we worked as a team. And I spent a lot of one-on-one time on that boat with my dad and being with him and getting to know sort of this group this fellowship of people who, you know, come from all different backgrounds, but still have a passion for sailing, um, taught me about teamwork. It taught me definitely about sportsmanship. And it also taught me about kind of building a community from a diverse group of folks. So why flyer would be my name. I love that. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for, for, uh, thinking about it and, and sharing with us why. So I, I love it. Suzanne, thank you so much. This has been super fun. And I hope you had a good time with us here on Iron Butterfly. And thank you for all the work you do. And thank you um, for being a friend and mentor to me as well. So uh, thanks again, Suzanne. Well, and I just want to say again, how humbling this is. If um, this group has followed, the listeners have followed the podcast before me. I am, I am blessed to be a part of this community and be exposed to some of the folks who've really sacrificed a lot for, for the mission. So it was a pleasure to share my journey and Insa's journey with you today. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Wise Wisteria and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. <laughs>